Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Ontario government was going to release its budget for this year, this month, but due to the COVID-19 crisis, they decided for a financial update instead. We'll talk with the finance minister about that on the program. Is a second wave of COVID-19 virus possible? Dr. Furas Khalid will talk to us about the possibilities of that happening. And the city of Hamilton held another virtual town hall last night in regards to COVID-19 in our city. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger joins us to discuss that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Originally, uh, this was the time of the year that the Ontario government was going to introduce their budget. Uh, Obviously, because of what's going on with COVID-19, that's all changed. These are not normal times. And what we got yesterday uh, from the uh, Minister of Finance was a a fiscal update and and a plan uh, to try to deal with the uh, coronavirus uh, impacts here in the province of Ontario. Bring us up to speed on uh, what we can expect here. We're pleased to welcome to the program the Minister of Finance for the province of Ontario, Rod Phillips. Mr. Minister, thanks so much for the time. Great to have you with us today. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having me on. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about what's in this package, because there's a lot of speculation before you made your announcement yesterday, Minister, uh, about getting money into the hands of Ontarians right away. Some people were talking about uh, something along the lines of a basic income, checks to every household and things of this nature. Uh, not quite exactly what you presented yesterday. How did you decide on, on this plan of attack? Well, Bill, you know, we uh, we had to change track about three weeks ago. Like every other province, we were planning to deliver our budget uh, based on the, the information we had then, and, of course, uh, it's dramatically different now. So we put together uh, a different set of economic projections. We put together a different uh, financial package. Uh, but, but it was from talking to uh, talking to people. You mentioned that Mayor Eisenberger is going to be on later. I was on mm-hmm. with, speaking with him and a couple of other mayors uh, a few days ago. One of the suggestions that the, we, they made was giving them the ability to defer uh, property tax payments, $1.8 billion of those. Uh, and so, so we did that, and that'll let them lessen the load. Uh, similarly, uh, we heard, uh, obviously, about the challenges that, that uh, some of our most vulnerable seniors face. So we're spending $75 million and going to double the checks for 197,000 low-income seniors. That'll happen in April. And, you know, as well, you know, parents uh, are facing a lot of pressures with child cares closed, with schools closed. So we're going to be providing $200 checks uh, direct uh, to, to parents uh, for every child 12 years of age and under, uh, 20 years of an age and under for $250 for special needs children. Uh, and the, the website to get those delivered will go up on April 6th. So we, uh, we've been coordinating with the, the federal government. Obviously, they are providing a great deal of income support. I've been speaking to Minister Morneau on a, on a daily basis about that. They announced a broader program. Uh, we're trying to make sure that, that we fill in the gaps uh, where we can. Uh, of course, our, our primary responsibility is to make sure that health care system is in place, and that's what the $17 billion package did today, all, all of those things. Significant amount of money being dedicated to health care, and there's a, a long list of things I know that you talked about yesterday, Minister, uh, for a number of things that have to be done here, and that includes equipment, et cetera, and uh, uh, for, uh, for ICU beds as well. Uh, is there a plan how to implement this? I mean, we know we're going to need more beds. We're told by all the medical experts now that this thing is going to get worse before it gets better, and it's going to put a huge strain on our hospital system. Is there a plan B? There have been talk about involving the military and, and mobile hospitals or a number of different options like that. Has that discussion taken place yet? You know, our our Minister of Health has been working uh, with their command table to to make sure that that there is a plan, and and now there is the money for a 1,000 more acute care beds, 500 critical care beds. 
you know, 70 COVID-19 assessment centers. Uh, those COVID assessment centers, for example, have been rolling out, uh, you know, very aggressively right across the province. It's a, it's a big province. Um, you know, what we did, Bill, on healthcare is we asked our health professionals. <clears throat> we said, "What, what do you need?" And and they they gave us, you know, another 950 million for hospitals. We provided that, but then we we also created a one billion dollar COVID-19 contingency fund, so a billion extra dollars. You know, as smart as they are, um, they don't have a crystal ball. They can't see exactly where this is going. So we've made sure that that money will be available um, when they need it. But, but yes, the, the plans are rolling out uh, through Hamilton Health Sciences, through all of the various uh, health centers across the province. And, uh, you know, we just want to make sure and we want to send the message that, that our frontline workers know the resources will be there. How flexible is this plan, uh, Minister? I mean, if it, things do get out of hand, and we're not sure, as you say, we can't predict the future. We can't predict next week, let alone five, six months down the road. Uh, is, is, there, is there a contingency plan? Is there a plan B here? Do you, do you rejig this whole plan if you find out maybe the resources that you're allocating right here are not going to be enough to deal with the, the, the workload and, the, and the, the patient load that could be happening? You know, you know, Bill, the reason we, we changed track uh, two and a half weeks ago was because we could see that the economy was very different than the one that we were, were dealing with before. It, it seems like a long time ago, but uh, just a year ago, Ontario had created more jobs than ever before in history. We were responsible for 74% of all the new jobs created in Canada, but obviously we're in a different place uh, today. So we have set aside, in addition to the to the, the COVID contingency, in addition to a $1.2 billion uh, contingency that we would normally put into into a budget, we've put aside the largest reserve in Ontario government history, $2.5 billion. So that is all there uh, to make sure that the resources we need are going to be there. Uh, also, if the economy is worse than expected, then you know we've reprojected uh, the, our economic uh, statement, but we, you know, you never know what's going to happen. In November, we'll bring forward a full budget uh, with with a multi-year projection because we're confident by then we'll have that outlook. But, uh, but the main thing right now is is making sure that the resources are there for healthcare and that we're supporting supporting people when they need the support. Busy day for you, and I, I appreciate your time today. And I, I know that you got to get going in a couple of seconds, but there was one question I wanted to ask you, though, Minister, and it was uh, an email I received from a, a small business person here that I know quite well. I was looking at some of the stuff that you announced yesterday. And the business tax referral that you announced here uh, is it, good news. I mean, that's, that's, that's a great tool for small business right now. But the concern here is that uh, a tax referral is not a tax forgiveness plan. I mean, at some point you're going to want that money back. And the concern that this gentleman expressed to me was that in six months from now, when this deferral plan is over, am I going to get hit with a big double tax bill here? Well, Bill, you know, uh, it's one of the things we've been court. It's a, it's a reasonable question. And uh, obviously we've been talking to a lot of small business owners. They want to stay operating if, if they are essential, and they certainly want to be able to reopen again when they're not. We did yesterday cut taxes by $355 million for about 54,000 employers. So that is, that's a tax reduction for, for the full year. You know, the deferral approach is something that we've talked about with the federal government. Uh, they've done the same thing as well because right now it's about cash flow. But, you know, listen, we are going to have to all uh, see how the situation evolves and adapt. We want to support our small business operators as well as the rest of our business operators because, you know, they are the ones who, who, who keep our keep people employed. And, and right now, uh, that's our main priority. If we can, if we can keep people employed and working, um, obviously that makes it easier to come back from. But, you know, we, w- we will get through this. Um, this is unprecedented, certainly in my lifetime, the combination of a health 
uh, and an economic crisis uh, coming together. But, uh, but I think first, dealing with the health crisis, making sure we're doing the physical distancing we need to do, making sure we're listening to our health professionals, um, and, then, and then dealing with the, what people need, uh, and then this economy will bounce back. But uh, right now, we've got to focus on the health. Minister of Finance, Rod Phillips, uh, as I mentioned, busy day today, and I know you've got a lot of other commitments to this, Minister. Thanks so much for the time today, and I will talk again soon. Bill, thank you for having me on. Take care. I uh, want to get some reaction to this as well, because uh, obviously the opposition parties have weighed in on this. Business leaders have weighed in on this. Uh, and I understand that these are the sorts of plans that get cobbled together on rather short notice. As Minister Phillips said, I mean, we just can't predict what's going to be happening in the days and weeks and months ahead. Uh, and there's a number of things that are, I think, of serious concern right here. The the one reassuring element, I guess we heard this from uh, the finance minister, the federal finance minister, Bill Morneau, uh, when he made his uh, statement, and of course uh, from the Ontario minister here, uh, Rod Phillips, is that they say this is the first step, uh, that uh, there could well be have to, some changes that are going to have to happen and, and, and reworking some of this stuff, uh, which may, may well be the case, because there's, there's no way of knowing how long this is going to go on. I mean, there are some politicians that are suggesting that, oh, you know, by summertime, we might be back to some sense of normal. But uh, I'm, I'm not so sure. We're hearing from an awful lot of medical experts right now that said this could well go on in some way, shape, or form uh, right through to the end of the year. And is this package that was announced yesterday enough to, to for us to weather this storm? I want to bring Andrea Horvath into the conversation. Andrea, of course, is uh, MPP for Hamilton and the leader of the official opposition at Queen's Park. Andrea, good morning. How are you doing today? I'm doing not badly, thanks, Bill. And you? Good, good. We're all healthy, I trust. Yes, uh, at this point, thank goodness. I uh, just had a quick conversation with the the finance minister, Andrea, about uh, what he announced yesterday. Uh, some concerns about the business tax referrals, uh, some concerns about uh, whether or not this money is going to get into the hands of the people that really need it. And those are the people that are without jobs right now, people that are looking in about another week and a half or so, saying, how am I going to make my rent payment or my mortgage payment right now? What's your read on what you heard yesterday? Well, I mean, the government's financial statement leaves out help for people. Uh, that's the bottom line. I mean, even in small and uh, medium-sized businesses, I mean, tax deferrals are great. But if you've got no revenue coming in, how do you keep your business going? Uh, so we think, um, I mean, I think the government missed the mark on this. But, you know, Ontarians have been stepping up. They've been doing their, their darndest. Uh, you know, of course, all of the people on the front lines of our health care system, the public health folks, you know, Dr. Richardson there in Hamilton, uh, here in Hamilton. And, I mean, ever, I mean there's just no doubt people are doing their best. They're stepping up uh, in this time of crisis, but they needed their government to step up to help them yesterday, and that didn't happen. So I'm, I'm quite concerned, and I've asked the government in my remarks yesterday to regroup, to rethink what they're doing here, uh, because as you've mentioned, I mean, people are lying awake at night wondering how they're going to make the bills, how they're going to put food on the table. Folks have been laid off in some cases for a couple weeks already, uh, and they don't know how they're going to get through this. I mean, small businesses are already saying they're, they're closing up shop. They can't pay their rent. Uh, it's, it's a time when the government should have, uh, you know, really put some direct money into people's pockets and some direct aid to uh, to small and medium-sized businesses so that their jobs are going to be there when, when this is all over, right? Well, here's the concern, and this is... 
this is happening to everybody in jurisdictions all over the world, of course, and and we're very cognizant of the, you know the fact that there's pressure on governments to try to respond to this, but but we were looking for something, and I know this government seems to have a real problem with something like basic income. Obviously, there's a philosophical problem with the, the way that they look at this, but even top ups for small businesses so they can continue to pay their employees. Other jurisdictions are yeah. doing that. As a matter of fact, the USA package uh, that was just passed there yesterday through the Senate uh, has some of those components to it, and uh, in other words, it is putting money directly into the hands of small business, and it's also putting money directly into the hands of the individuals, the people that are trying to make rent payments or mortgage payments like that. Uh, I'm not seeing any of that. And, and, you know, no, we're not seeing it either. And, you know, the other piece about that, Bill, is that it doesn't drown your other systems. I mean, if people are going to be forced to go to UI, or UI which is or EI, what which is what they're doing, uh, that system is going to be just overwhelmed. I mean, it's so much easier. Well, we saw that federally, so didn't we? more direct. Uh, well, 100%. O- o- over, over a million people have already applied for the program that the federal government's putting in place right now. That's, that's huge pressure. I know, and they're not going to see a dime until sometime mid to late April. And what are people going to do in the interim? I mean, the anxiety that folks have had, are having is, is immense. And I think, you know, what they're worried about right now is how are they going to avoid, you know, uh, avoid, uh, uh, you know, rent arrears? And how are they going to avoid racking up debt? And where, how are they going to pay the mortgage? How are they going to pay the rent and put food on the table? You know, how are those small businesses going to pay the rent? Uh, so it would have just been so much easier uh, to do exactly what you described. But the government for some reason, took a different path. And that's why I said to them, you have to regroup, regroup and rethink this, because it's, it's, not, it's not what we need right now. We, we need, you know, tax deferrals are fine. You, you talked about tax deferrals, but if you don't have revenue coming in, wh- what good is a tax deferral? Do you know what I'm saying? How do you keep your company going? So well, the one, a, small yeah, business, a- the one small business person I was talking to emailing back and forth, with, with, was, that was the point I just asked the minister about. In six months, is he going to get a bill for, for the deferred payments plus whatever he owes the government at the same time? It's not as if these guys are going to be swimming in cash. If even if there is a recovery, that's going to put immense pressure on small businesses to try to pay off what they owe the government. Well, I mean, exactly, and that's a time when you don't want that pressure, when you want to be able to get the economy back up and running as quickly as possible, which is why, you know, that uh, that other, and we, look, Bill, we recommended these things to the government. I mean, we, uh, unfortunately, they didn't um, respond. I mean, we were asked on on Friday, late Friday, if you get something into us uh, by the end of the weekend, by end of day Sunday, we'll have a look at it. Well, of course, we did our due diligence, as we always do. We identified what we thought would be the best uh, way forward, uh, provided that to the government on the deadline, and then crickets. I mean, they didn't reach out. They didn't ask for clarification. They didn't in any way. I want to ask you about that, Andrea. I want to ask you about that. Was there any dialogue? Because we found out when when the federal government was putting their plan together, uh, there was dialogue between the opposition parties and the government. I'm suggesting that they they didn't incorporate everything the opposition parties wanted, to be sure. But there was a a, a session around the table. Okay, what can we do and how can we do this? I'm hearing that there was no consultation with the government here. None whatsoever. None whatsoever. In fact, we first saw what the government's plan was at one o'clock yesterday afternoon. We were in lockup. My my staff were in lockup, and uh, and we had to vote on it literally three hours later. And again, I mean, we weren't going to stop the government from putting you know putting pa- their package through. Uh, but but you know, we are very um, we we very much think 
that the government's at a step. The government, you know, as people have been doing their best to step up here and to try to, you know, do their, their part uh, in trying to stop the, this virus from spreading and, you know, all of the, you know, physical and social distancing and all of those pieces, having their kids at home, worried about losing their jobs, but they're trying to hold on. And the government, they needed their government to step up as well, and they didn't do that. And the fact that they didn't engage us was, it was, it was wrong. I mean, it was, this is a time when everybody's supposed to pull together. And I know they, their, their talking points include that they cooper, we cooperated with the opposition, but you know, that's, that's really not the case, and it's unfortunate, um, because I think that had they taken some of our recommendations, uh, people would have been able to sleep better tonight, because all those folks who are worried that they're not going to pay the bills and that their business is going to go down the tubes that are lying awake at night, well, they're not going to sleep any better uh, with this package that the government's put forward. I got about a minute left here, Andrea, and I just I've got to get you to comment on something else. And I understand that we're concerned about the here and now, as as we should be, uh, because of the impact it's having on people right now. But they also talked about the economic projections, and and they talked about zero growth, of course, by the end of the fiscal year, uh, which I think is rather optimistic. I mean, most of the uh, people I've talked to that are looking at what's happening here from the economy standpoint are suggesting negative growth, and they, they, it sounds as if the government is just thinking, boy, when we get out of this in the fall, everything's just going to go back to the way it was, and we're all going to be fine. That's kind of looking through rose-colored glasses, isn't it? Well, especially when you're not, when you're not doing anything on the front end to uh, to ensure that those companies can rebound, and that's the problem, right? I mean, the the, the big benefit of of doing uh, you know taking care of uh, those small businesses and medium sized businesses and helping them to stay afloat uh, and helping them to continue to pay their workers would help in that recovery uh, that recovery scenario, right? But but that's not happening. So, I mean, I don't I don't want to be you know Debbie Downer and I don't want to be all doom and gloom, but I can tell you that. Uh, that I'm, I'm pretty concerned about um, about how long we're going to be in a in a painful economic situation, uh, and and what that's going to do to um, you know to everyday families and to you know to the small and medium sized businesses that uh, that help fuel our economy. I mean, it's really it's really troubling, and I think having um, rose tinted glasses is not the is not the way to, uh, to to address this. Because the other thing is, of course, you know, government tends to be at 30,000 feet, and this is the time when they need to be on the ground and paying attention to what real families, real businesses, real people need. Opposition Leader Andrea Horvath. Andrea, thanks so much for the time today. I know we'll talk a lot more about this in the days and weeks ahead. Take care. Absolutely. You stay well, Bill. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's talk about the virus itself, the COVID-19 virus. Uh, we've heard some political leaders suggest that uh, this thing is going to blow over as soon as the warmer weather gets here, uh, that by Easter, well, that was one of Donald Trump's musings, that, you know, we, let's get everybody back to work and filling the churches and everything else by Easter. Um, not so sure that's going to happen. In fact, uh, there is strong evidence right now that there could well be a second wave of COVID-19, even when these numbers do start to decrease. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Ahmad Firas Khalid, uh, who is a member in the Human and Social Sciences and a medical doctor and uh, health policy advisor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Uh, doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back on the show today. Of course. Happy to speak to you. When we start looking at, at, at the life cycle of this, uh, uh, I, I think some people are under the impression that, look, at when we finally get a vaccine and, and when these things die off, that's going to be it for COVID-19. But we're hearing some rather ominous warnings from a number of people in the, the medical field, doctor, that said uh, it's probably going to come back because it's uh, when it's going to be warmer weather here, it's going to be cooler weather in the southern hemisphere, and they could well see a spike in their numbers. So that's a great point. So two things, I guess. Uh, first, although we, there are vaccines in development right now, we have to remind everybody that it doesn't happen overnight. 
there's probably be a year before we really see any vaccine in the market that we can use because they have to be tested and verified that they're checked for any side effects that might emerge. Now, in terms of the second wave, it's when we really see new cases come about after a sustained period where we have very little cases. Uh, obviously, now we still have exponential growth in the number of cases, which is alarming to all of us. Uh, but will a second wave happen? I think time will only tell. Most likely, we do expect a second wave to happen with COVID. Remember, COVID is a game changer. Uh, it's a new virus. We're learning how it functions day by day and how it manifests itself. Now, in terms of the temperatures, we have to also remind ourselves that in uh, uh, COVID did hit Singapore and parts of Australia, which now are their summer season. So this whole theory that over summer it might calm down because of hotter temperatures, we've heard reports from World Health Organization uh, confirming that that's not might be the case because we're seeing it happen in warmer temperatures as well. So uh, that kind of blows that theory out of the water. Uh, plus, there's the strength of the virus itself. I guess the other element to this, too, and I think you mentioned this in one of our previous discussions, Doctor, mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that is, is making this spread as quickly as it does is, is we have no immunity to this. I mean, we uh, the whole reason about, as you mentioned, with vaccines is, you know, that basically builds up our resistance within our bodies. We don't have any of that right now. So, you know, how quickly can we develop those immunities so that we're not going to be as prone to these sorts of things? That's an excellent question. So yesterday, actually, the senior, most senior doctor at the World Health Organization, which is our go-to source for any evidence-related information about COVID, was actually asked a very similar question to this. And the question was, if somebody gets COVID, because, you know, the cases are increasing, 81% of people that get COVID-19 are mild. They're, they're going to be okay and they won't require any treatment. Uh, will they become immune? So if a second wave happens, uh, will they be concerned? And honestly, her question, her answer was very telling. She said, we simply don't know. We suspect that, yes, immunity would have developed. Uh, those people would be better at, at uh, being able to address that. But there's no way of telling that. We're learning that right now. So, again, it's a new virus and we're learning everything about how it functions now. And, and we're trying to simulate a lot of scenarios using the most brilliant minds that we have to figure out what this might look like. But it's very hard to give a definitive answer now. I, I will say this, though, about the second wave. I think it'll be very interesting to look at China and South Korea because they will really provide us those important insights that we're all, all hungry to find. So if a second wave happens, we will see it first in China. As you know, now they've lifted a lot of their bans. Uh, they're allowing people to leave mm -hmm. their homes. They're much more looser about their physical distancing. So, uh, And as of now, we, we've been hearing that zero new reports. So if all of a sudden we see that China and South Korea have a massive increase in number of cases, then the second wave will happen in Canada as well. Let's, let's talk about the way that they dealt with that, though, because I think that's uh, that's very instructive as well. Uh, we've, we've, it's gratifying to know that the number of cases in China and South Korea have gone down significantly, almost to zero now, which is which fabulous news. And there's an expectation that, hey, we're going to get to that point in some way, too. But we're not being as diligent as, as they were. I mean, the social distancing that, uh, that you just talked about, Doctor, uh, was strongly enforced by the Chinese and South Korean governments uh, to the point where people were being charged. I mean, if you just don't go out on the street. Uh, we're not there yet. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people here that still think this is no big deal. Yeah, I mean, I strongly agree with you on that one. This is a conversation we're having on the daily. Uh, will we be going to the draconian measures that China did, this very military-style uh, no, that's not. Canada doesn't seem to be taking a note out of that book. Uh, Canada's trying to more rely on communities to step up and do their own under their own freedom of uh, rights. Uh, having said that, I think I think it's very telling. Yesterday, when uh, they decided that uh, we're going to mandate 
a 14-day isolation under the Quarantine Act for all travelers coming to Canada. I think that's telling you that, yeah, you know, social distancing hasn't, or physical distancing as we're calling it now, hasn't worked as well as we wanted it to. And that's why there were, as a government, the government of Canada is going to a little bit more stricter measures, especially when it comes to travel. Uh, and we didn't see this before. In the past, it was simple screening measures at the airport and recommending people to self-isolate. The narrative has changed and changed as of yesterday. And now we're mandating anybody that comes uh, into, our, into our borders to uh, self-isolate for 14 days. And we're also seeing that there's increasing calls for physical distancing. Like that, that narrative and that message from the government has not calmed down on the country. It actually increased over time. A couple of things about that, because we're also told that as we see the numbers increase and we're told that there is going to be an increase here, notwithstanding our best efforts with social distancing, uh, that it's it's the majority of these new cases are going to be person-to-person contact. It's not going to be from uh, some outside like it was initially. Uh, so it's there. And in, in other words, you know, we're dealing with the, the here and now and, and the people that are right now, uh, which I guess underscores the social distancing. But the, the frustration, I guess, doctor, that a lot of people are feeling uh, and we've heard some of the political leaders talking about this too. Is is the they, they, the economic concern, and they're saying, "Look at, uh, we'd like to see this thing over, and we'd like to see some of these restrictions eased by springtime." Mm-hmm. Uh, but I watched Dr. Fauci uh, yesterday in Washington with his daily uh, update on yeah. what was going on, uh, and uh, he basically said that uh, he says we cannot control the timeline; the virus controls the timeline. Do you agree with that? To a certain extent, yes. I think that the virus, because it's new and we don't really understand fully how it's being transmitted within the community and the, and the, and the speed of its spread. Uh, that is true. But that doesn't negate the fact that, you know, we have put in place measures that do work. We know that physical distancing uh, is the right and effective strategy. We've seen it work in other countries. This is not based on, you know, somebody's theory or, or idea. It's based on evidence. We've seen it work in other cases. Uh, I will say that it, it is alarming to us that there is a fundamental shift now in Canada. We moved from being the majority of our cases related to travel to now um, over half of our new cases are linked to community spread. So what we knew about this virus in the beginning, that it's mostly a travel-related virus, is no longer the case. We're learning now that actually we should be really, really concerned about community transmission, and that's why physical distancing and the collective action of everybody involved to really put forward that narrative of like continue physical distancing. That doesn't mean you can get with somebody for coffee to go out for non-essential goods. It really means staying at home uh, as much as possible to really plank the curve, as uh, Teresa Tam has stated. Yeah, exactly. Watching all the coverage yesterday, I think it was the Medical Officer of Health for Nova Scotia. They were all doing media conferences, of course. Uh, But the gist of the message that that he was giving at the time was that if we stop moving around, the virus stops moving around, and we have to remember that. Yes, of course. And, and I know that's difficult. People are getting antsy. And, and you know, but frankly speaking, I, I relate to them. I've been locked up in my house for two weeks. I get it. It's, it's you know, you get so crazy. And so I think it's just going to take that understanding and belief in our system and hope that we won't get to a crisis like Italy. We don't want that. And, and that everybody really, I really mean that it's a defining moment for our country and it's, uh, everybody really has a role to play in this. So don't go there thinking that you don't have an active role in playing in helping to address this. I mean, I'm still seeing alarming images uh, of people gathering in Toronto, and that's not okay, and we need to really get ahead of that.
The other one, too, that I think we have to get around is uh, the, this idea about uh, who is going to be impacted the worst by this uh, mm -hmm. and actually contract the virus. And initially, I think we were thinking, well, okay, if you're elderly, if you're on over 65, or if you have a frail and elderly or pre-existing conditions. But I'm looking at the... Uh, the number of, con of uh, confirmed cases we have here in the Hamilton area, the medical officer of health, the doctor was talking about that yesterday at their virtual town hall meeting. And it's instructive here, of the 19 so far, two of the patients are under age 20, yeah. 11 of them are age 20 to 44, and 13 are age 45 to 64. Exactly. Only 12 of, of the confirmed cases are over 65. So everybody's, everybody's at, at risk here. Correct. And, and let me just add to that. So we know from the evidence that the median age of anybody who has ever been tested for COVID so across the world is actually 30 years old to 79 years of age, with obviously some cases younger than 20 years. And the point to make there is it does not just it does not discriminate against age. Uh, we know that it affects any age group. And for the younger population, people in their 20s or, or younger than that, also be be aware that you might get the disease and be mild for you, but then you're a carrier and then you might give it to somebody else who's of older age or immunocompromised and it won't be mild for them. And so this is why we're urging everybody, no matter what your age is, to be really careful about this virus because the implications are far beyond you. Well, and I made that point yesterday on the program, and, and I know that's something that you've talked about as well, is uh, because you don't know what pre-existing conditions the person next to you or that works with you or wherever you are or standing beside you at the park might have. I mean, uh, we, we talked about autoimmune diseases, and those are people that are at risk. And many of those autoimmune diseases, you can't look at somebody and tell that they, they, they have scleroderma or something else. I mean, it, it depends on how it presents with each individual. But they're hugely at risk right now simply because of what's going on in their body already. Exactly. And, and I, I actually even would add to that yesterday, the World Health Organization with Director General added asthma. I mean, so many people yeah. have asthma. And so it doesn't have to be as extreme as some people think. I mean, I, I noticed that we weren't very careful with our wording in, in the health policy world and saying that it's just you know, diabetes and hypertension. Actually, it could be as simple as asthma because uh, it's a respiratory problem that so does make you a little bit more compromised. So uh, most everybody we know, I know, has some form of asthma. So it doesn't have to be as, as dramatic as a, or as severe as a severe autoimmune disease. Well, because we tend to take things for granted. I mean, you know, if, if you're diagnosed, you've got that little puffer, and as soon as things are getting a little tough, a couple of squirts and sit down for a few minutes, and you're usually okay. But that mm -hmm. does put you into that category of a pre-existing condition. As you mentioned, this is a respiratory uh, virus that's going around. Exactly, and it can affect anybody. And I think that's the key message here is that nobody's immune to it. This virus is doesn't discriminate, period. As we go out, I wanted you to get some clarity on this, if I could, Doctor, because I'm hearing all sorts of varying opinions about we still have to buy groceries, we still have to you know, get whatever we need to get at the store. Hopefully we're minimizing those trips. Uh, but when we're doing that, uh, how fastidious do we have to be with cleanliness? We know about washing our hands. I, I know some people are wearing gloves and, and face masks, if they can find them. Uh, but should we be washing cans and fruit as we come home? I mean, you know, who, who knows who touched that uh, on the grocery store shelf? I mean, do, do we go all out on this sort of thing just to be uh, erring on the side of caution? I'm really glad you brought this up. I think we can't stop talking about this. We need to continuously be talking about this issue. First of all, face masks, please don't buy them. I think the message there is, is loud and clear. Only wear a face mask if you are ill uh, with COVID, as in like you've been tested positive for it, or looking after somebody who may have uh, coronavirus. 
Otherwise, you should not be wearing a face mask. Please stop buying them. We need them for our healthcare resources. We're running out of them. I think we're seeing the reports over and over again. In terms of preventive measures and washing hands, uh, I do understand people are getting frustrated with this continuously washing their hands. This is why we've also urged for alcohol-based hand rubs. Uh, and so they work equally effective. So if you can't have access to soap and clean water, please use the alcohol-based hand rub. Would you need to wash your fruits and vegetables when you come home? Yes, uh, do wash them. We don't have that evidence. Quite frankly, we don't know whether the virus really survives on those surfaces. Our in- the indication so far is that uh, most of the testing has been done on in steel structures because that's what a hospital mostly has, right? And so mm-hmm. we're trying to figure out in the hospital setting, is the virus surviving on our surfaces? Uh, we, the evidence hasn't really looked at anything beyond that yet. And, to, and that information will come probably shortly, not long, long from now. But as of now, we are advising everybody to exercise preventive measures to a certain extent. I wouldn't want the public to be, you know, spraying down their vegetables and fruits with like Lysol. I think that's very unhealthy. I think a, a regular wash with water and soap should be okay. Again, we don't know that. It does, most likely, it does not cause transmission through food yet. We, have, we don't have an indication to prove otherwise. Yeah, I don't know if anybody saw the YouTube video that was circulating a couple of days ago, but some guy at a Tim Hortons drive-thru yeah. uh, spraying his Tim Horton cup with Lysol <laughs> and then throwing the, the lid away. Uh, that, that's overdoing it just a little bit, I guess, but I guess we do have to be, well, we've always been told to wash our fruits anyway, even the organic stuff. Exactly. Uh, simply because you don't know where it's been and, and what, what processes it's been through, et cetera. So erring on the side of caution seems to be the way. Uh, but it's, it's, it's a total commitment to this that we always have to just be like this. I mean, I'm going out in a couple of minutes here to get rid of the blue boxes, you know, because it was garbage collection yeah. day here too. And, you know, you got to be careful about touching that sort of stuff too. Yeah, and so in that case, if you're a little bit concerned, you could, you know, uh, wash your hands before, wash your hands after. Yeah, uh, yeah. And make sure you don't touch your eyes, uh, nose, or mouth in the process of you moving your uh, your bins outside. So it's just simple measures like that. There's nothing more to it than really those simple measures. At what point do we look uh, and say, maybe we've got a handle on this right now? I mean, we've been told that we're going to see these numbers continue to peak uh, and, and obviously we're trying to do what we can here as individuals. I think most of us are anyway, uh, with social distancing and some of these other measures, doctor. Uh, but what do we see? What, at what point can we see a decline and what point can we say, Hey, I think we're, I think we're getting the better of this now. That's a great question. So two things we want to look for. Number one is that we stop seeing this exponential growth. And to be clear, what exponential growth means is this massive increase in number of cases. If we wake up tomorrow and we see, just a few more cases, maybe a couple of hundred, then that's okay. That tells us that social distancing, physical distancing is working. But if we keep seeing hundreds and hundreds of increase in number of cases, that's still alarming. That means we still have to have those measures in place. And number two is that our health system is not drowning. And by that, I mean is that we are able to address other health needs beyond coronavirus. So God forbid one of us has a heart attack. We go to our hospital they're able to get to us. They're not swamped trying to take care of the massive number of coronavirus patients. Uh, so those two big signs for me will tell us if actually social physical distancing is working and our measures are in place. Uh, we, we do know that it's an effective strategy and we just have to be patient with it. Are the numbers reliable? Uh, because I know enough. Uh, first of all, the, the testing issue is still out there because we, we haven't yeah. overcome that yet. Uh, and, and there may well be cases here that are not actually being chronicled and, and not, not included in those numbers. Uh, when those test results do come in, and we've been told that there's a real backlog there, uh, we're likely to see these numbers spike anyway, aren't we? 
Yeah, of course. So the more testing we do, the more cases we will be able to identify. Uh, and so the numbers will change. But at a certain extent, right? So at some point, like, we'll be getting better at, at figuring out who really is most likely need to get tested. So if they have a fever, 100% we're testing them, right? Uh, they've been in close contact with somebody with COVID plus, they're getting tested. So we're getting better at really getting all the target demographics. But in terms of the numbers, I, I, I empathize with that because I think, you know, we see different numbers reported in different places. Uh, and for me, as a health policy expert, I like to go to the government of Canada's website. I understand mm-hmm. that their numbers are not always up to date in the sense that they only update it once a day uh, as opposed to other news channels. But to me, that's really the, the verified source to go to. Uh, good advice all the way around. Uh, Doctor, always good to have you on the program here and to give us some perspective on this. Thanks so much again for the time today. Of course, happy to speak again. Thanks. Take care. Dr. Uh, Firas Khalid, of course, from uh, Wilfrid Laurier University with some good advice. Uh, we're not over the hump yet. There's still a long way to go. But uh, again, as, as Dr. Khalid has said and others have told us from Health Canada and other uh, people that have commented on this, uh, we've got to be diligent about this. Social distancing, it may be getting a little tedious for us, but it's the only way that works. That's what China did. That's what South Korea did. And I know that uh, the recently released uh, public opinion poll says most Canadians don't think that it's actually that effective. Well, what's your plan? Because <laughs> that's the one they tell us is effective, and the medical experts say that it is. And I'd rather believe them uh, when it comes to how we're going to combat this thing. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on uh, yesterday's uh, virtual town hall. Uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, medical officer of health, and, uh, and of course Paul Johnson, who's in charge of the emergency task force, among others, uh, were answering uh, questions from the community. Uh, try to get a handle on exactly what's going on and a clearer picture on how Hamilton is dealing with this and the impact that it's having on this city. Uh, to bring us up to speed on that, we're pleased to welcome Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger back to the program. Good morning, Mr. Mayor. How are you doing? Good morning. I'm hoping you can hear me now. We can hear. Everything seems to be fine. How is the, uh, social, how is the social distancing going for everybody? Well, it's, uh, you know, it's a challenge for everyone. Uh, you know, we're all working from home as much as humanly possible. Uh, you know, we're uh, po- probably going to have some council meetings done virtually, digitally. Uh, everyone's Skyping in. Uh, and, you know, City Hall is essentially, uh, you know, a lot of people working at home. Maybe maybe 30 people at City Hall kind of keeping the, uh, the place functional. And everyone else uh, working from home and continuing to do the work they need to do to keep our city functional. So it's... Uh, it's uh, it's a challenge, uh, of course. Uh, it's a challenge that hopefully everyone can uh, can overcome and and you know keep finding creative ways of uh, managing their time. And uh, as I said to our you know radio spot this morning, you know we I think many of us have thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could uh, just get a month where we don't have to do anything, don't have to go anywhere, don't have to go to work. Well, for uh, for a lot of us, that's where we're at. And now it's uh, it's a great time to be creative in terms of how you utilize that time. All for the right reasons, for the right cause, is to stop the spread, crush the spread, or crush the curve, as uh, Niagara Falls is calling it, which I think is a great slogan, and uh, hopefully we're getting on top of that. Mr. Mayor, how effective can the, the staff and, and council work in situations like this? I mean, in, in ordinary times, of course, uh, the staff are always very busy, depending on which department, of course. Uh, they're, they're doing their research. They're processing things. They're coming up with ideas and, and policies that council has asked them to look into. Uh, and then, of course, council will meet. We know that process, and, and they will debate that, and, and things will go on that way. Uh, how has that system changed? Uh, um, just because everybody's working at home, is, is it a, a smaller workload right now? Are you focused on just key elements at this stage? 
Yeah, there is a smaller workload, but I mean, in many areas, the uh, the work still continues. Uh, building permits still need to be issued. Uh, you know, development uh, proposals are still being evaluated and analyzed. Uh, I think what we're finding, and as I talked to some of the staff uh, yesterday, is they're they're finding that this is actually working pretty well. <clears throat> so there will be some learnings from this uh, going forward as to uh, you know what how how we could work virtually for some people into the future. Obviously, what's missing is that uh, that front counter service that uh, many people rely on in terms of paying the taxes or coming in and talking to talking to a planner uh, at the city to get an idea of how they can you know do the expansion that they're thinking about doing. You know, more often than not, uh, face-to-face uh, you know discussions, conversations uh, gives you a lot of nuance that you might not pick up on a, in a digital capacity. But uh, the reality is that there are some areas in, in the in the, that the some areas of work that the city does could 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 be done uh, you know digitally or on, on mobile devices uh, not away from city hall, and uh, that will some that will have to be something that we assess uh, you know after the fact after we get through all of this, and I'm sure that that applies to radio. You, I think you're you're finding out that uh, you can function as a radio station uh, without actually having a radio station. Which uh, is interesting because you're uh, working remotely from home and uh, dialing in people as you might uh, to do new interviews. They're probably sitting at home, and even though you need a master board and maybe a producer to uh, to, to to kind of direct the traffic, uh, all of that can work given the uh, the technological resources that we have. So there'll be some interesting learnings as a result of that, and um, you know it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. And, of course, essential services are ongoing. I just had my voice picked up about half an hour ago here, so that goes on. I know there was a bit of a blip uh, because of some of the safety and health concerns, but uh, you seem to have overcome that as well. Uh, another yeah. anomaly, and, and I guess every time you set a policy that's supposed to be able to deal with some of these things, i.e., uh, for instance, transit, uh, all of a yeah. sudden you're going to get some people, I guess, that are going to abuse this, and there have been reports about people that are, I guess the expression yeah. we should use here is joyriding on, on HSR buses because there's they're not collecting fares right now. Uh, they're not using transit to go from point A to point B to go to work or whatever. They're just going for a ride. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so we, uh, we, we went to the Saturday you know, uh, guidelines in terms of service, knowing full well that it needed to still be predictable for a lot of people that need to get to, get to work. Uh, they use the bus to get to their job at the hospital or, you know, the police station or the firefighters or all the frontline workers, garbage collection folks. Many people use the bus to get to work. Uh, so we uh, we wanted to make sure it was predictable, but we also wanted to make sure it was safe. And so uh, we have allowed for backdoor entry. Uh, it's free at this point because, you know, you, you can't pay if you can't get past the driver. We want to protect the driver and the passengers. But we're finding, as drivers are indicating to us, that uh, people are getting on the bus at a certain location, and when they get to the end of the end of the line, and there's a there's a beginning and an end of, it, of every bus run, that there are there are people that are staying on and going around for the loop, and so uh, that is uh, one a dangerous thing to do because you are putting yourself at risk of getting a coronavirus uh, landed on you because you're now interacting with very many more people than you need to. And you're putting other people at risk because you're bringing into the uh, the, the bus uh, potentially a coronavirus that can be uh, you know delivered to other people that are on the bus getting to work. So don't do it. Uh, this is not a time for uh, you know these kinds of recreational jots. I understand that uh, you know kids out there are going to be uh, somewhat bored. Uh, they need to be entertained somehow. Uh, this is not a good way to get their entertainment uh, free up. And, we, and we're you know we're also saying the same thing about you know the uh, the up and down stairs. Uh, 
of the escarpments. Very popular for exercise. Uh, I get that. People, uh, you know, challenge themselves to do that almost every day. Unfortunately, too many people on there that can really negates the benefit of uh, separating everyone and, and not spreading this virus, including, you know, grabbing the handrails and going up and down the hill. So we're also saying to those people, if, you, if you're using it to get to work, please continue to do so. Try and avoid touching the rails. If you don't uh, need to use it to go for work, don't go there. Find another way of getting your exercise. Back to the buses for just a second, if we could, Mr. Mayor. I, I, yep. we, we, we talked about social distancing. Is there a limit as to how many people can actually get on the bus? Because you don't want people sitting side by side as, as we would in a normal circumstance like this. Yeah, well, there, uh, there isn't a limit per se because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's one of those necessary evils, unfortunately. You know, you, you get left with making choices between, you know, a, a, a good or a bad outcome. And, you know, people need this if they uh, can't get to the front line work in the hospital. Then we they we can't get them there. Then uh, you know they're they're not able to be uh, be at service to us in terms of the uh, their higher volumes of of need that that are has, happening in the hospital. But we uh, we are asking people, and I think by and large they're adhering to try and maintain that six foot separation. Uh, the the volume on the transit system now is so low that it's uh, much much easier to do. Uh, you know, anecdotally in Toronto, I think the uh, the transportation system is running at about 19%. I'd be, I, I, I imagine we're probably running uh, at about uh, similar 20% of our capacity. So the volumes are way down. So the buses uh, are much, much more empty. And so people can uh, separate themselves, physically separate themselves and, and make that work. When, uh, when the crush happens in the morning, uh, it's a little bit more difficult to do. But, uh, you know, it's still something that people still need to get around. So it's something that we, uh, you know, in, in some measure unavoidable. But uh, we continue to ask people to, uh, to do everything they can, wash their hands when they get on, wash their hands after they get off, uh, so that we can stop the spread in every way possible. We talked earlier this week uh, with Paul Johnson and, and with yourself, Mr. Mayor, about uh, some of the other public facilities here, conservation lands and things of this nature, the waterfalls. We are the yeah. city of waterfalls, and that's a great tourist attraction. We know that. Uh, but there was a concern with huge crowds over the last uh, few days and over the past few weekends. Now, you've officially announced that those are closed to the public, uh, but you can't physically put barriers up there or fences up there. Are, are you marking and, and, and checking with compliance here as to who's doing what? We're heading towards another yeah, weekend exactly. now. We, we are. We know. And, and, you know, we've had, uh, you know, too many people at these waterfalls at, at any given time previously, even before this started to happen. Waterfalls, for whatever reason, are you know, extremely popular and we've had all kinds of parking issues. Uh, what we've done now is that uh, Albion Falls, for sure, is closed. Uh, the parking lot is also closed. And we're certainly asking people not to uh, park up and down the street to, to get access to, uh, to the viewing platform. It's, uh, it's cut off. And we will have bylaw officers going around uh, checking to make sure they're not messing up the traffic uh, in those locations. But the parking lots are closed, and the same for the Conservation Authority. So, you know, it would have been a great thing if we could have left them open and, uh, you know, people would be able to get some exercise. But we're finding that uh, people, far too many people are going there at the same time and uh, interacting too closely. And that is obviously a potential for spreading the uh, coronavirus. So they, too, have decided to close their facilities. They've also closed their parking lots, so they put barriers in front of the parking lots so people can't get in. And uh, we're asking people to look for other alternatives. Uh, you know, I know getting out and getting some fresh air is very important. Uh, you know, a walk around the block or two times or, uh, you know, a jaunt in the park with the dog, uh, all that is good as long as you're maintaining, uh, you know, your six-foot physical separation. 
I, I was on the uh, the waterfront trail over the weekend at, uh, on the Lake Ontario side at Confederation Park. Lots of people there, but all of them keeping uh, six feet apart, uh, giving each other a wide swath. And uh, I think that's, uh, that's appropriate. Uh, but gathering up in a parking lot, uh, you know, hanging around the falls and uh, having a conversation with groups of people is just not the right thing to do right now. So don't do it. It's, uh, and we're relying on the public at large to, to listen to us. Uh, we're going to try and enforce uh, the, you know, the federal government has just, uh, you know, put the quarantine law into place, which requires uh, 14 days isolation if you've uh, traveled and are coming back. Uh, we don't want to get to that point, uh, you know, in terms of those absolutes, but uh, a lot of those fines and penalties are now starting to come. So if your business is still open today, uh, you potentially could be into uh, into a fine, depending on whether you're an individual or a corporation, anywhere from 1000 to $500,000. So penalties are starting to accrue if people aren't, you know, doing the behaviors that uh, are going to keep them safe. And we don't want to get into that uh, on a localized level, but we are policing all of that uh, to ensure that people are doing the right thing. With Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger, uh, last night at the uh, virtual town hall, as we mentioned, public health were also there. Uh, we've seen, watching our television coverage of this, of course, uh, Mayor de Blasio and, of course, Governor Cuomo in New York, which has now become the hotbed, I guess, of this virus, not just in North mm-hmm. America, but it could be worldwide. Uh, looking at the exponential growth of what's happening here, what what information are you getting from our public health department? Are they are they concerned about the rise? There are increases. We've had more cases that have been reported right now. Uh, what, what what kind of reaction are we getting from public health about what's going on? Well, we uh, I mean we're sharing that publicly, and uh, you mm-hmm. know their uh, their mission right now is, and and you know all of this effort is really aimed towards uh, you know flattening the curve so that uh, we don't overwhelm the healthcare system and then we protect more people from spreading the virus. So uh, I think their uh, uh, their expectation is that uh, we're going to see more of these cases. Uh, they're, uh, you know, hopefully we're not going to see uh, more deaths, but, uh, you know, I, I would like to think that would be true, but uh, that may not be possible. We, we know that uh, the most you know, prone people are, uh, you know, older people with uh, preconditions, pre-health conditions, heart heart troubles or breathing problems that they already have. We know they're at risk. We also know now, though, that uh, that it's not just that uh, generation that's at risk. It's the entire population. Uh, anyone that contracts this virus could be in critical condition and could die as a result of this, uh, whether you're healthy or whether you have one precondition, whether you're young or whether you're old. And we're seeing that evidence of that now coming out uh, as, as death notices accrue across, across the country, across North America, that it's cutting across all age groups. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's not uh, discriminating. And, uh, you know, the virus doesn't discriminate between individuals, and it's really going to determine how long this is going to last. And so if we can curtail the, uh, the spread, uh, crush the curve or, uh, you know, flatten the curve, then, uh, then we can continue to manage this virus that's going to be around for a while. The, the virus isn't going to disappear. Uh, the question is, how quickly can, uh, can the, uh, the, the researchers produce that vaccine that's going to keep us uh, safe into the future? Uh, you know, the flu, if, uh, you know, people that are comparing it to the flu, well, the good news about the flu is many, many more people would die from the flu if we did not have a vaccine. And so uh, right now, we're, you know, we're totally in the hands of the virus. Uh, until such time as the vaccine is available, uh, this, this, this virus is going to be around. And uh, our ability to be able to uh, immunize ourselves against it uh, will only come if you've had it 
you might and survive, then you might have some additional immunization as a result. But if you haven't, uh, you, you will continue to be at risk until such time as a vaccine is available. And so the public health concern is uh, let's let's do everything possible for people to stay in place at home as much as possible so we don't spread this virus. And if we do that, then the healthcare system can continue to manage the cases that need to come into the hospital. Uh, we're just about out of time here, and I do want to talk to you about uh, some of the federal and provincial initiatives. I know you're going to join mm-hmm. us again tomorrow for a Mayor's Town Hall, and maybe we yep. can uh, delve into that. I know your staff are looking at some of the numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. We had the uh, Finance Minister, uh, Rod Phillips, on earlier in the program. You mentioned that he'd had some conversations with you and, and city staff about uh, the needs of municipalities. So let's uh, mark off some time tomorrow to talk about that, both the federal and provincial programs and how those might yeah. benefit Hamilton. Uh, thank you so well, much for the time again, Mr. Mayor. Great talking with you, and we'll talk with you again tomorrow morning and get an update on that and we'll talk about some of the number crunching all right have a good day today you too hamilton mayor fred eisenberger the bill kelly show weekdays from nine to noon on 900 chml the bill kelly podcast is available on apple podcast google podcast or wherever you get your podcasts from you can also listen to the bill kelly show weekdays from nine till noon on 900 chml I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.